0: Welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Dr. Michelle Chung. Dr. Michelle Chung is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in anxiety-related ADHD slash executive functioning challenges, building resiliency, and in working with recovering perfectionist types. Currently, Dr. Chung heads a boutique group practice in New York City and teaches at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Chung, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited for our conversation. How
1: are you really? Well, first, thanks so much for being here. It's really an honor and I love whenever we get to have a conversation together. You too. Um, so thanks so much. Um, how am I really? Such a good question. Um, you know, I would say just Given everything that's happening around us and, uh, you know, with, with the pandemic, everything that's happening in Ukraine, there's just so much, okay. I would say, I, I'm really trying to make a decision to stay positive, to make positive choices, and just really being able to ride that wave of uncertainty. Um, you know, I've been saying to so many of my clients, it's all about the pivot. Yeah.
0: That reminds me of Friends, Ross.
1: Pivot, yes. pivot.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes. But you know what? It is so true. We've been living in so much uncertainty for the last two years now. And as much as I want to like say that it's easy to get used to it now because it's been that way, it's still very overwhelming. And there is so much happening constantly. Once you think we've seen it all, something else happens. And it really is hard to stay positive in the midst of it, especially when you turn on your TV or open your social media and you're seeing the news and it's all the bad things happening. Right. So I'm really excited that you're or really happy that you're trying to stay positive and work through it. Today, I actually started bullet journaling with my brother's girlfriend because we were like, how can we stay positive? How can we do something that sparks our creativity and inspires us in the midst of a time where it's just so Dark and depressing'
1: I'm so hard friend I love that idea you know not only do I love the idea of bullet journaling but doing it together with somebody you know I feel it just makes it that much more um, you know obviously it keeps you accountable to, to keeping it up but also that much more kind of uh, it you know it builds that connection with with another person so.
0: Exactly. And we can build off each other. So I was like, we should do a gratitude page. And she's like, and let's add affirmations. So it's really being able to kind of balance each other out and encourage each other to do more, which I really like. And it helps us to want to continue to do it because that's a fun activity when we spend time together. So it's the first thing we'll do before we go do something that we might find more exciting.
1: Oh, I love that. I think you've just inspired me to try to do this as a family with, with my family right. members.
0: I think it's so fun. But first of all, I want to say that I am just absolutely amazed by you. You uh, you know how much I adore you. You have such a range of amazing specialties. Anxiety, ADHD, executive functioning, affect regulation, perfectionism. What inspired all of this passion to become a clinical psychologist?
1: Well, Fran, first of all, you're just too kind. <laughs> um, True. I will say this: it's been a long road, you know. I think um, I, I really will say that I am in a, you know, somewhat of a lucky and unique position where I can say I really love what I do. I, for the most part, get up every morning. I look forward to. Seeing my clients and and you know getting either on, on video or to my office and doing you know what I do really does bring me joy. Um, you know, of course, there there are those moments where I would love to be able to stay in bed for a few a few more minutes or whatever it might be, but um, you know I I love being able to every day see see what my day holds. You know, you in some ways don't never know, but um, it's it's a an exciting type of never know. And at the same time, I feel like I learn something new from my clients every day, and I'm inspired by their ability to be vulnerable and brave, um, and and just lots of wisdom I even gain from them as well. So, um, you know, I think it, it if if I were to think back to when it all started, I would say. For me, it probably started when I was definitely a little kid. In my social group, I was that kid that everyone used to come to, to talk about problems, you know, just tell me things. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, I, I walked to my, up to my mom and I said, mom, I want to be a psychologist. And it's a weird thing to say when you're in sixth grade. You were so young. I was I was very young. And, you know, since then, that was my path, right? I always had a curiosity for human nature. I always wanted to understand what was underneath people's motivations, you know, what was really behind what people were saying. And my husband jokingly says to me all the time that my favorite question is why? You know, I'm always asking the why of, of what people are doing, or what why people are saying certain things. So I, I think there was an innate curiosity and, and just a, a, that that has grown in me over time. And I went to, I guess I went to college with that intention, I was going to be a psychology major, I wanted to go to a clinical psychology doctoral program. And around my junior year, I want to say I hit a bump in the road, and I might, I might say, I burnt out pretty early at that point. I worked really hard and was doing all this research. Where you know, we we're getting, I was getting undergraduate grants, and instead of being a slow burning flame, I want to say I was, I was sort of a firecracker, and burnt out really uh, quickly. So upon graduation, I decided to take a job in management consulting and wanted to try out the business world, just wanted to try a different part of my brain. Um, And I will say, I I do not ever regret that decision. It helped me understand things from a totally different perspective. I I got a lot of different experiences and life lessons that I learned during that time. But it came to a point where I knew this was not my passion. And I had to go back to what I felt I... You know, in terms of finding like purpose or meaning, I felt like psychology was really more aligned with my values and what really meant, um, you know, really had meaning for me. So I went back into research and publications, and finally applied to graduate school. And here I am.
0: That is such an amazing story to know what you wanted to do so young, and to kind of stray off that path, and then come full circle back to it is amazing. And you just Thank you for being so brave and open with that because it's such a common story, right? That we have this goal in mind and we work so hard towards it and we burn out. And then on top of that, it's such a common story that we have this intention of what we want to do. And then we go to college and it changes and we kind of take the safe job. Mm -hmm. And then we sometimes start to regret it. We're like, why didn't I go for this? Or this isn't my passion. This isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be at this job every day and not enough people get the chance or have that ability to get to change majors, go back, get that degree that they want. A lot of people, whether it's the lack of resources to be able to, the lack of time, or if it's just this fear, a lot of people aren't able to take that step. So I hope you celebrate the fact that you take that step. But for those listening who maybe can relate to this where they're feeling burnt out or they're not loving the career path they chose, what advice do you have for them?
1: That is such a great question. When I talk to my young adults about this, a lot of times what I always stress to them is that this, especially finding your sort of greater purpose or your career, hopefully, you know, you, you, you will be in that position where, where they can actually intertwine. It really is a journey, right? And that at any point, I think there's a lot of fear about making that wrong decision. And when you're making those decisions, it feels like it's such a big deal, right? Every, like every, every decision you make, every path that you decide to pursue feels like that's almost like a final destination. But I always remind my clients, Hey, there's, we're going to go back to this, the pivot, right? There's always moments where you can pivot and there's always moments to, um, you know, I think there is value in exploring different opportunities and, and just different strengths that you might have. And then if it doesn't work out, there's a pivot.
0: Yes, that is so true. And going back to what you said before, it's just such a hard time to make that change people are afraid because there's so much fear and pressure on every decision we make especially as young adults because you you're in high school and you have to pick what college you want to based on what job you want what degree you want because you want to be in the best program for what you want and then you have to excel in that and then you have to know what grad school program you want or what job you want and if you make the wrong decision it's that's it They put so much pressure and emphasis on knowing what you want and doing the right thing that people are terrified. I know for me, I felt so lost. I was very similar to you. And the fact that when I was 12 years old, I knew what I wanted to do. I was going to start a blog called Inspiring My Generation. That was 11 years ago. And now Inspiring My Generation is a nonprofit and I'm where I am today. But before that, I have a master's in information systems and my father hates when I say this because it makes him feel like a waste of money, but that wasn't my passion. That wasn't what I want to do now looking back at it, but that seemed like the right choice because everyone said technology is the future. You should get into technology. You should learn how to code. And although it's such a valuable skill and I'm so lucky to be able to have that skill and to have had the ability to go get that degree, whereas many people couldn't it still wasn't the right path for me. And I'm lucky to be in a position where I can try again and find that right path. But again, there was all that pressure and I chose something that aligned with the pressure put on me instead of what my heart was telling me.
1: And I'm so glad that you decided to, to take that pivot, right. And, and to really follow your, your heart and where you felt your purpose, that purpose was really calling you um, you know, and, and um, I I actually didn't realize that you, that you, this idea came to you at 12. I mean, that's such a young (laughs) age to really, you know, I mean, even to be able to think in that, in that way at 12, um, but then to really sort of chase that journey, but then taking these different paths along the way,
0: um,
1: you know, I'm sure that's even, it, it reminds me of even just like holistic brain development, I'm sure it really helped certain parts of your brain, you know, sort of flex itself and develop in a way that it's right now coming all together, right? Um, Exactly. That's great.
0: Thank you. It's so funny. The other day I found an email my grandmother had sent me 10 years ago. And at the end of the email, she said, I hope to God one day I'm sitting in a rocking chair reading your books. And to see that 10 years ago, that's what I was talking about. And that's what I want to do. And that's where I am today and what I'm doing to see that I did stray off that path. And there was a huge chance that I was never going to get to that point. But I was lucky enough to recognize it. And to have the opportunity to make that pivot and people like you who talk about it and who share this experience and the story really helps inspire people like me, who sometimes aren't sure what decision to make or make a decision. And they're like, you know what, that's not the right one for me. So thank you so much for again, sharing this.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the other point that I was just thinking is like, even if you do burn out, just like I did, you know, because I, I was so eager and so passionate, I think in the beginning that you know, there's, there's always still a way back, right? Just because there was that burnout doesn't mean that you can't revisit that in a way that's healthier and more balanced.
0: Exactly. And I know we have a really important conversation we want to jump into, but before we do that, can you share maybe one or two tips on how to overcome burnout?
1: Oh, that's such a great idea. Yeah, a great question. I mean, uh, there is a book that I really have been into recently Um and the the name is eluding me right now, but it's something burnout. And um, I can get I can get you the reference, but it, it's it's actually written by two sisters, um, Nagalski and uh, I'm forgetting the the last names. But um, she they they had done all this research and and looked at all these studies on not only humans but also animal studies and trying to look at um, they they brought up this idea of completing the stress cycle. Have you heard about this, Fran? I have not. What is a stress cycle? So it's it's fascinating because they're saying that burnout happens because we have basically all these stress cycles that are happening in our life all at the same time, which really makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you know, maybe a health stress cycle that's still spinning, right? Um, You know, a school, career, family, you know, financial stuff. So there's all these stress cycles that are happening and they're spinning all at the same time. What's happening is that we're not necessarily closing the loop, closing the cycles so that we can create less stress cycles. And burnout happens when there's multiple stress cycles that are happening all at the same time that are eating away at our resources. And one of the things that they found out is that there are physiological things that we can do to actually get the stress cycles to close. Um, It's it's quite amazing. And there are things as simple as hugging somebody for 20 seconds, um, laughter, there's vigorous exercise, Or another, I I call it the wiggle up. I have to give my my son credit for this because uh, one day we were kind of talking about this and he's like, oh, it's kind of like the wiggle up where you just wiggle your whole entire body and just like shake all the stress and energy out. I love that. If you do that, you know, and and, uh, of course, sleeping a lot, you know, connecting with um, people that you love. These are all science backed ways To complete those stress cycles and reduce the burnout.
0: I thank you so much for sharing that. That is such amazing tips. Number one, physical touch can just be so great. I get a little burnt out, a little overwhelmed very, very frequently. And I tend to just run to my parents and I'm like, can I have a hug? All I need right now is a hug. Just hold me. And that helps me so much. And I didn't even realize how. That's actually a science back thing. And it's not just me being needy. It's something that's genuinely able to help people and then wiggle it out. I love that. I am such an advocate for dancing it out. Obviously, it's yeah. from Grey's Anatomy, but that genuinely just blasting Taylor Swift, that's always my go to, mm-hmm. and dancing around the kitchen, just like singing the music and moving my body is so amazing. So, for people listening, I think you just provided so many useful tips that I think people hear, but they don't realize how it's actually something that helps.
1: Yes, and you know, I'll I'll get the reference uh, and send it to you, Fran, so you can have the correct uh, title of the book and the authors. But um, it's a it's a good one. It's it's very practical too. So.
0: Perfect. I'll make sure to include that in a post to the week this episode comes out. But I really want to switch over now to our topic because I know you specialize in promoting mental health awareness within the Asian-American community. Yeah. So according to data collected by the National Latino and Asian-American Study, although Asian-Americans have a seven point seventeen point three percent overall lifetime rate of any mental health disorder Asian Americans are actually three times less likely to seek mental health services. So, of course, there are financial barriers and the mental health stigma that prevents members of all backgrounds and communities from seeking professional help. Furthermore, we often talk about the disparity in seeking treatment among different genders. However, I don't think we talk enough about the disparity in different cultures. So can you tell us a little bit about the stigma in the Asian American community?
1: Absolutely. I think... In terms of the stigma, it definitely is a multifaceted and complex fact, a bunch of factors that really come together to make it harder for Asian Americans to really seek out mental health services. So in in there's cultural factors, there's also historical factors that do play a role here. Culturally, the Asian American cultures there there are many out there right but most of them do tend to be collectivistic right they they're more they're more of a collective culture where one's individual needs is not really put before the larger group's needs and because of that there is there are a lot of expectations and a lot of ways in which you know in in west more western cultures it's about Learning to advocate for for yourself, learning to, um, you know, figure out what you need in situations, drawing boundaries. In these collective cultures, it's more about, uh, you know, what what is what's better for the greater good, what's better for my family, right? What won't bring shame, you know, to to my family. So there's a lot of it's a different set of values, really, and a different set of expectations there, and especially when you and 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 pressure too, right? And especially when you think about families and just just how the family groups work, there is this this order. The, it's you know it's called filial, filial piety. There's a deference. For your elders, right? You respect them, you speak to them in a certain way. So there is the sense of, you know, you have to meet their expectations, you don't want to disappoint them, you have to live up to a lot of, you know, of of what they are expecting from you. And therefore, you don't want to bring shame, right? If, say, for example, uh, you have like a certain flaw, I don't know, say, uh, you know, you might struggle with depression, or maybe there's addiction, right? There's there's a extra layer of wanting to hide those flaws because you don't want to bring them to the surface. Otherwise, it does bring a sense of, you know, there maybe there's something wrong with this, you know, with this family, right? The, the whole group, you're representing the whole group and not just yourself. And I think on top of that, there's these alternative forms of of um healing in a lot of the asian american cultures or asian cultures i would say
0: um it really sounds like the fear of bringing shame to the family name plays a huge role in not wanting to reach out and you are so right within the individualistic cultures you know the culture that i've learned growing up here with um we were more, what can we do for ourselves, right? It is really, what can I do for myself to better myself? Mm -hmm. And if I don't do well on a test, for example, that's my fault. That's not anything with my family. And I don't feel like I am letting my family down, letting my parents down. I take that personally. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like in a more collective culture, It's not just that personal shame or fear or failure that we have, but it's also the fear of making our family look that way or disappointing our family.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a huge role. Right. So shame, feelings of shame, of guilt, you know, of, you know, it's not just about you. It's about protecting the whole family.
0: You know, exactly. So what advice might you have for someone who is from a collective culture who's afraid of bringing shame to the family but really needs some support and doesn't know what to do
1: so i i would say here is this is definitely a a tricky balance because again it is about values and priorities and a lot of times these you know the the values it, it, it is a value to say, I want to protect my family, or I don't want to bring shame upon my family. And at the same time, you do have to balance the fact that, yes, paying attention to our own individual needs is also really important, right? Um, I think I have actually, def- uh, in situations and families that I've worked with like this, I have done a lot of psych- psychoeducation with the parent body, right? And in terms of understanding that, you know, th- this is not necessarily a, a shame-based thing, right, that everybody, whether they're talking about it or not, is dealing with some sort of struggles or, you know, whether it's mental health related or, or just, you know, financially or, or it, it could be anything, relationships, you know, the, every family has their own struggles. And, this just you know might be and, and and a lot of psychoeducation around the fact that hey some you know there's there's nurture and nature here right so taking a look at okay what's what's your child's disposition like does depression or anxiety run in your family you know how how can we as the parents support this and 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 sort of help um a, a family member uh, Sometimes it could be even the parents that are suffering in this way, right? How how can you help that particular family member get better and heal, but at the same time, find a place that feels comfortable for them, right? So much overcoming shame is about sometimes putting it out there. Once it's out there, it doesn't have that power over you anymore.
0: That is so true. And it sounds like family support is huge in a collective culture because it's not just about me going to therapy and getting the support I need, but when I'm afraid of the shame bringing to my family, bringing my family name, knowing that my family is there for me and supports me along the process and has the information, resources, and tools they need to be able to do that, it helps just reinforce that it's okay not to be okay. Now, I know you also mentioned that there was a historical context, if you wouldn't mind jumping into that as well.
1: Sure, um, you know, I think in, in terms of, you know, th- there is, I think some religious aspects here, right? That have been passed down generation to generation that uh, many of the religions in the Eastern cultures do tend to prioritize a lot of things like self control, self discipline, keeping harmony within the group and balance within the group. So so there is i think some an idea that hey, if you can't keep this in check, you know, then you're either not trying hard enough or you're not, you know, strong enough to do this, right? And in that way, what is really interesting about Asian Americans in general is that in in the immigration process, there has been a really strong connection to uh, religious community groups, ethnic religious community groups, because that is a place where other people like you are gathering, right? Um, and so, because of that, there is a very strong connection to religious communities in the Asian American group, and and I think I think that is a part of what. Um, also makes it hard for people to seek mental health because, depending on the religious, the 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 outlook on mental health in that religious community, but also there's a leaning on the the clergy, right? The, you know, whether it's the pastors or the the monks or you know whoever it might be, they, they tend to rely on them for healing and not doctors, in that same way, right? That was a really
0: great point you brought up. We actually talked about this in class yesterday and how one of the reasons we're seeing a rise in people reaching out for therapy and going to therapy is because there's been this shift in, I don't want to say a lack of religious beliefs, but understanding that maybe the priest can't always help you and maybe waiting for the higher power to help you when there is a reason we have these tools. And I personally believe in God, so I will use God as my term. Um, But God has provided us the ability to do this research, to bring these tools, whether it's medication or CBT or DBT or just any tool that we have comes from that higher power and being able to recognize that it's okay to reach out for help. So I love that you brought that up because I just learned about this less than 12 hours ago.
1: That's great. Oh my goodness. That's great that you guys are talking about those cultural components, even in your classes. Um, You know, I I think it it just reminded me of something too, which is the the immigrant experience itself, right? And how that shapes seeking out help in general. You know, I think that um, it just, when you asked me about the historical content it reminded me of intergenerational trauma Right. And, and just the 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 you know, the, whether it's, you know, I'm Korean, so I know I had grandparents that lived through the Korean War. Right. So there was there's there's that trauma that that they kind of carry and bring into the next generation. Then, you know, my my parents had immigrated to the United States. There was a trauma even in that. Right. The the immigration struggle. The the story is often about struggle, right? So, you know, there, there's this this intergenerational trauma that is passed down, um, and and it, and it also it reminds me of um, you know people from Jewish cultures too, right? The the Holocaust survivors and how they, um, you know, have picked up certain traumatic uh, just. Values and and perspectives and ways that they look at the world and uh, how that affects other generations beneath or or even people who have gone through the Great Depression. You know, um, there is an intergenerational trauma that does happen. I think for the Asian American population, not only is there a language barrier, right, to to seeking out services and and just help in general, but there's also this sense for the the first generation, second generation, even third generation. Asian Americans, there is this idea that my parents have given up so much, my ancestors have given up so much for that, for my, for my own benefit, for that I'm supposed to live this amazing life. And how could I complain about my anxiety or feeling sad or feeling like I can't do certain things when, if I look at my, you know, my parents or my ancestors, they've gone through so much more. And so really in some ways that minimizes our own struggles and feels like we don't have a place or, or, you know, that you shouldn't have those particular struggles when obviously mental health struggles do not discriminate ever. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like you
0: feel like you don't have a right to have human emotions no. and A lot of people, I think in general, struggle to just find ways to express their emotions, but to not even feel like it's okay to have them and then to learn to express them and process through them has to be so difficult. Now you touched on intergenerational trauma. For those who don't know much about it, what are some ways that it may show up or present itself in one's life?
1: So that's a, uh, you know, I think, The way that I have seen it in a lot of my families that I work with and clients that I work with, sometimes it does show up in a sort of financial sense where um, if there was a struggle financially that even though you might be comfortable and in a place where you don't necessarily have to worry about that, there is is this anxiety that still sits there um, around money and finances. Another thing is around food, right? Um, You know, this idea of like, this is so wasteful or or just resources in general, actually, that, you know, so-and-so wasn't able to have this, you know, this was so hard to get, you know, it, it would be such a waste to either throw that out or not eat every piece of rice on, you know, on your plate. You know, all of these type of messages that are passed down. But probably the biggest thing that I see that's really passed down generation to generation is anxiety. Yes, that is
0: so true. And you brought up such a great point that, you know, sometimes we honestly just feel guilty for having more opportunities than our parents did or our grandparents did. And there's this fear and stress of, not being able to accomplish more with the opportunities we've been given Absolutely. and look at how far they've come. I got to live up to that. I have to be able to do that too, which can cause a lot of fear. And then with the added piece of look at how much my family's done and my family name has come through, how can I let them down? Mm-hmm. How can, what if I bring shame to them because I can't get as far ahead as they have, and I can't provide as much for my kids and my grandchildren.
1: There definitely is that added layer of pressure. You know, absolutely. That I see in a lot of the Asian American families that I work with, especially in in the children. Um, you know, I live in New York City where there's a, a lot of very successful, very, um, you know, educated families that, you know, um, A a very clear-cut example of this is when, when there are parents that have gone to top Ivy League schools, right? Then the children all of a sudden are, whether the parents even put the pressure on them or not, there is just this innate pressure that if they did it, I have to do it too, right? And so this This pressure of you know and and some of them did it when they didn't even speak English the, as their first language or you know whatever whatever it might be, so there is this added pressure and layer to meet those standards and those those expectations, and that fear of just really disappointing or failing really does weigh on so many of the asian American um people out there I wouldn't say I'm, I'm generalizing here but you know the, it's definitely something that I have seen a lot in my practice
0: I'm really happy that you've shared all this information with us because there really is this idea I think a lot around a lot of other cultures that there is nothing different between my culture and someone else's culture right and we tend to just the model minority myth right the end yeah. I really think I love how you have related this kind of in a more generalized area and then explain the added pressure, because I think that's where there's a lot of disconnect and a lot of misinformation out there is people don't understand the added piece. They see just the piece that they relate to. So like I'll use myself as an example, when you're talking about the fear of, Like for me, it's my dad being successful in business and I want to be just as successful, but it's not a pressure or feeling of shame if I'm not or my family, making my family look bad. It's more of, I wanna live up to that, but it's me. It's not the pressure at all from him or the idea of the pressure based on my culture. So being able to see that, kind of line that on one side versus extending it was really, really helpful.
1: And I think, I think, you know, what is a bit unique to the Asian American experience too, you know, in addition to, to what you were speaking to is that the, the model minority myth is something that is unique to, to the Asian American um, people, right? It, it is a societal pressure, actually, that is then added onto everything else and you know the model minority myth is an in, it's it's got an interesting history so kind of going back to some of the history here so it was started in the 1960s and it, it really was this idea that asian americans were good almost second class citizens right and some scholars actually really believe that the idea of the model minority myth you know, was created to work against other minorities by saying, hey, look at this group of minorities over here. They were able to achieve certain things, right? And to pit that against other minority minorities and say, if they're able to do it, why can't you do it? Right? And it's to maintain that current system where, you know, minorities are never really able to rise above Right. And and on top of that, there's that assumption that all Asians are the same, which obviously they're not. Right. Um, it, it's it's an it's absolutely an unreasonable and and that's why it, it's it's an unreasonable level of expectations. Plus, that's why it's a myth. Right. It's, it's not true there, that not every Asian is good at math. You know, not every Asian is going to go to an Ivy League school. You know, there's, there's just so many of these shoulds that are placed on that, on that Asian model minority myth that, you know, I, I say to my clients all the time, stop shooting on yourself, Right. Because if you live under the tyranny of the shoulds, it really is a form of oppression, right? And and that feeling of never being good enough to to live up to this unrealistic standard that society has somehow placed on you, it's hard. And it leads to feelings of inadequacy and self-esteem issues. And this is something that I unfortunately do see a lot of in my practice in working with Asian Americans.
0: I am really, really happy that you brought this up because first of all, that stereotype of good in math is a really great example because I think a lot of people can understand and relate to that because that's what we learn in school, right? That's what we tell people. So when we have someone who is Asian in our class and we kind of look to see if they're good at math, right? And those are the comments we make and aren't you supposed to be good at math? Or let's copy off their paper. And <laughs> there does add a lot of shame if you're not. If you're not good at math, it's like society's telling me my culture's telling me this idea that I have to or the society's telling my culture that I have to be good at this. And now I'm letting my community down. I am making a bad yeah. name. For my entire community, which is so stressful, it's hard enough to do math. I mean, I loved math and I cried during almost every test. So that is just a really big added pressure is that model minority myth that we have created. And it really does push people down and make it harder. And I think this is a really good se- segue into my next question is what are some of these other key factors that contribute to the rate of mental health conditions in the Asian American community?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, in terms of key factors, I, I definitely think the high shame, right? And, and the, the proneness to shame Linked to that collectivist culture leads to um, increases in suicide rates. You know that that is a known fact that um, Asian Americans or Asians in Asian cultures in general, there does tend to be a higher rate of suicide. And there, you know, I think that that model minority myth obviously adds that extra layer that is unique. To the Asian American experience. And, you know, just speaking about the model minority myth, it just reminded me of the fact that, you know, when I work with younger kids, younger Asian kids, you know, I will share with them that I am an Asian that is not that good at math. It never was my thing. It's just not the way my brain worked. And, and I have a dad who actually has a master's in mathematics you know, in, in fact, he has two of them, right? I mean, he, so it, apparently it's in my genes somewhere, right? But I don't know, it must be a recessive gene. <laughs> I don't know. It just is not the way that was my strength. And so I will tell, you know, the, those clients like, Hey, I was an Asian that was bad at math and I figured it out, you know, and I did fine. So let's, let's break away from that stereotype. And there are some, some real great role models of that, you know. Some somebody that just comes to mind is um, David Chang, who's a, a celebrity chef. I don't, I don't know if you got, if you know who he is, but he started a chain of restaurants called Momofuku. Um, but he is, you know, he's somebody that has excelled. He's won the James Beard Award. He has these like really amazing restaurants, you know, in like Vegas, in New York City, in Los Angeles. You know, he's a chef, right? And, you know, I don't know, he might have been good at math, who knows, but, you know, he's breaking the mold, right? Um, So these people who, you know, Chloe Kim, the Winter Olympics just happened, right? Amazing. I mean, she's amazing. But again, breaking the mold. So just really finding examples and, and ways to kind of push that, I think, is really important. Um. Definitely the vulnerabilities of being being a population that our immigration history to the United States hasn't been that long. I mean, yes, we have been here, you know, uh, Asians have been here since, you know, I want to say like the, I think they were saying the 20s, there, there, there has been some records, but you know, a, ma- a majority of the Asian population, you know, started to really kind of move here, you know, kind of... More closer sixty seventies eighties so our history here hasn't really been that long um, so there is this still this immigrant intergenerational trauma culture that is that is a part of us and there's this sense I think because Asians do have a different way of approaching healing right there's this holistic approach. There's looking at more of like religious and spiritual sort of healing ways. There is a tendency to wait very last minute to seek help, especially mental health type of help and support in that way. And so uh, it, it reminds me of, of these stories that we used to have. I used to work in, in, a, in a psychiatric emergency room, the CPAP it's called. And the, the CPEP is, is it's kind of a, an, an, an interesting thing because we knew if an Asian person came through the emergency room, likely it would be a really serious situation because there is a tendency for Asian people to wait for the, till the very last minute, till it's very s- severe to actually come out and seek help in that way. Um, so I do think that all of those things together n- produce vulnerability factors, right? And they're, they, they contribute to making it that much more difficult for the Asian American community to to reach out for help and to get the mental health uh, support that they need. That makes
0: a lot of sense. And first of all, I didn't know that the Asian community didn't start moving over here to like really the 60s and 70s. I think that's a really important fact that does the intergenerational trauma add to that. But the fact that not as many, it sounds like, were really born in the U.S. and even had a chance to be raised in an individualistic culture that we have. And it might be another generation or two before they have any kind of individualistic culture really added into there which means this is going. This is very likely to continue that you're less likely to reach out for help. So for people who are listening, who are part of the Asian American community, who again, maybe are struggling with their mental health and they don't even notice, what are some of those warning signs that it may be time to look for some kind of support?
1: This is a really important point to, to stress here because I do think that um, you know you know whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression the the or or even more severe things that might be happening, um, you know it, I, I think the one thing to really think about is how is it affecting your functioning right like if if and struggle in that sense can be relative, right how much struggle are you? how much effort, how much struggle are you putting into this, you know, just to function at whatever level that you're in. And to really ask yourself about pain, how much pain are you in? How much suffering are you feeling? And, oh, sorry, go on.
0: No, I just want to say, like, in class, one thing that my teacher had taught us to ask about is, how is it affecting your school or work life and your social life? And if you don't Maybe want to go anymore suddenly all of a sudden you just don't want to show up anymore you don't have the same energy you did or the productivity that's a really big warning sign that most people miss
1: absolutely and I think the thing that i I, I remind people of is you don't ha- life doesn't have to be lived this way right with this amount of struggle or this amount of pain that there are things that you can do to to make it better or to help yourself or resources or, you know, support out there. Um, And that is like one of the things that when people say to me, you know, well, maybe I'm fine. Like maybe it's, it's not, maybe I'm just making a big deal out of things or they're reluctant to seek out help or to take that, that really, uh, you know, important step. That is usually what I will say to them. Like you do realize that you don't have to live your life this way. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think sort of looking at yourself and seeing like, how much is it really affecting your functioning? That's usually the, you know, the 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 main and the first thing to really view and look at. That being said, Fran, I will say this, I think everyone could have something to work on. Absolutely. You know, I don't think it always has to be about... About pain and suffering, you know. I think, I think if there's something that you want to understand better about yourself, you know, if there are habits that you you seem it seems like you just can't change, you know, but but it's something that you really want to be able to do, you know. These are all things that actually are reasons to to seek out potentially, you know, um, you know whether it's mental health services or a coach or a psychologist. You know these are all ways that you can find this level of support you know if there's a if there's a relationship that's really difficult but yet still important to you um you know that would be another reason to really seek out some support and help so you know I always say that you don't have to wait till it becomes a problem you know to to really look for this type of support you know you could get it on, you know, on the front end, where it's actually easier to change things and and make these improvements. So it's really about how can you improve your life? In what ways do you want to?
0: Yes, exactly. You know, I actually recently went back to therapy, it had been a full year. And I was like, you know what, I'm noticing that I do prioritize my work and what I do. But I way over prioritize it to where my friends would be like, let's hang out. And I'll be like, okay, but then I'll show up with my work, Mm. right? I'll be like, you know what? We can hang out, but we're going to make encouragement cards. And they're like, you know, like we don't mind making the cards, of course. But sometimes we want to just hang out and not focus on work or I'll show up to dinners with my textbook. (laughs) I've done that the last four family dinners in a row. And I was like, you know what? All this is really important to me and I'm really happy that I have the ability to prioritize, but this can be such an issue later on if I am ignoring my need to have a social life and to be able to surround myself and be present in the present. So just going to therapy and catching something before it becomes a real problem is key. And I'm just so happy you brought that up because that's something I'm going through right now
1: hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you were able to have that self-awareness and that insight to sort of catch it at that at that place, because, you know, I think I think it is about, you know, like I said, how how do you want to improve your life? You know, um, and being able to ask yourself that question, too.
0: Exactly. And I have to give a lot of credit to my parents because they both looked at me and said, you need to go back to therapy. And I was like, I know you are right. I know. I will find a therapist. And my mom blew up my phone with therapists every single day until I made the call. So although I was a little self-aware, my parents really ensured that I reached out. So I do have to give credit to them in case that they're listening and they know I'm not taking complete credit for it. Um, But you know, one other thing I really want to point out and It's something we've spoken about before, and it's something that I even, again, talked about in class the other day. It's really cool, by the way, to have be in school for psychology and being able to relate these to the conversations. I I know, it's so neat. It's like, oh, I get that now. Uh But it's really hard sometimes when you go to a therapist and you can't find one that comes from the same cultural background as you and that's something that's very prevalent in the Asian American community. So, if you can't find a therapist who comes from that same culture, are there ways that you can maybe educate your therapist to understand pieces of your culture and your background that may influence your personality and the way you behave and present yourself?
1: This you know, I I will say um Yes, I think there definitely are. And this is this is very much, I think, a personal choice, especially in since the, the pandemic and everything that was happening with the AAPI hate movement. You know, I have definitely come across a lot of referrals where people have said to me, I'm in therapy, but I'm in therapy with a non-Asian therapist. And I really feel like it's time for me to to. Be work with somebody who is from my at least a similar background, um, and and understands some of those values and sh- you know shares some of those values in that way. Um, you know that being said, you know I don't think you need to work with somebody all the time. You know that is from from your similar background because even people from similar backgrounds might not have the exact same experience, right? Um, But, you know, I'll I'll share a personal experience here that I had. I remember in my early 20s when I was first seeking out therapy, um, there wasn't many Asian therapists out there, Asian psychologists. And so I I really didn't have really anyone to choose from. So I went to a a woman who is actually very good at what she does. She came very highly recommended, um, but was not Asian and or and was not Asian. I, I was speaking to her about a lot of just family dynamics and things that were happening. And, you know, I, I kept coming across this feeling where she kept pushing me to differentiate from my family to, you know, sort of separate and, and become more individualistic in that way. And I was in my early 20s. I, you know, was not ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. And, you know, most and and i think she you know as most majority american cultures you know individuation happens right around you know when you turn 18 right they start to to kind of say oh you're an adult right now you you should start to individuate but it wasn't aligned with my values you know at at that point i was completely high functioning adult you know i was in graduate school at that time i was fine i had no problems with my family actually you know we were we were at a good place and and i kept feeling this pull for having to separate having to separate and and we spoke about it for for you know a few times here and there but eventually i just felt like it it wasn't a good fit for me and i eventually left um that therapeutic relationship because it was just a different norm, right? A different cultural standard and norm. You know, I, I think that being said, I think no matter who you work with, whether it's somebody from your same cultural background or a different, there does have to be some education in terms of where you're coming from, right? Because like I said, even though you're from the same, same background, it doesn't mean it's exactly the same. But there definitely is something a little bit more um, or can be more comfortable about not having to explain certain things in the same way, right? Um, but, you know, it, it, it very much is an individual choice. But when I think about representation in the industry of mental health, you know, I do think it's really important that, that there are, you know, Asian therapists out there. And there recently have been more and more of them which I think is amazing. And um, you know, I'll share this quick story. I was recently at an Asian American conference for mental health providers. And they did this really neat exercise at the end where they asked everyone to show your video screens. And there was about probably like 170 some odd of us there. And they asked if you're practicing five years or less, turn off your screen. And I wanna say 75% of the screens went blank. And they said, if you've been practicing 10 years or more, turn off your screen. I think there was like 10 of us that were left.. Maybe not even. Um, and then they said, "If you're practicing 15 years or more, turn off your screen. There was like five left. And 20 years or more, there was only one person. <laughs> wow, But that just
0: shows how representation is finally growing, and I think that was such an important point to bring up, and I'm so happy you did, because that's a perfect way to finish this off is the hope that is coming for so many people from the Asian American community. Dr. Chung, you have been absolutely amazing. We are very short on time right now. So I'm going to include a clip on our social media page of nonprofits and resources that you have shared with me to be able to put out. So if you're listening to this, please make sure you check our social media for that. I appreciate you all the amazing work and advocacy you do and how many people you just inspire, including myself. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Fran, for having me. And I feel the same way just for you, towards you as well.